Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, The Malice of Inanimate Objects by M.R. James, first published in a magazine called Masquerade, June 1933. I believe that is a magazine of uh, Eaton, um, James's uh, school, and um, it was buried for a long time. It's a two-page story. I think it's very um, mysterious in many respects and also quite jocular um, I sometimes consider it uh, too small to even think about and then other times I think it's quite interesting <laughs> which I think is uh, probably down to the skill if not the attention of James Say say more about that. So some you mean not while you're reading it, but retrospectively. Sometimes it seems more or less. uh, Yeah, he he, the way he frames the story. There's a there's a um, a framing device that is I think right out of uh, Brothers Grimm, um, a story a, a ridiculous story, and then we get the story proper, and the story proper is rather ridiculous too. But then, in reflecting on our own lives and the way human beings have to live in the world, I think that it, the ridiculous sort of nature of both stories um, may be mapping something quite serious in our world. And uh-huh. uh, you don't feel that in, in reading the story proper, but I think if, upon reflection, and that is really what the story is about, is about reflection, I think... Um, you get you get something uh, quite powerful, even though it is a very slight tale. So, what what happens in the story? Okay, so there's two friends, uh, old friends, who are sitting around at a breakfast table in the garden, and one of them notices that the other has a uh, bandaid on his face, and uh, he's have a sort of grumpy face, and. Yet there's no problems in the world. He notices then in the paper that a friend of the fellow with the band-aid on his face, uh, or not a friend, a acquaintance, or at least someone he is uh, in a lawsuit with, um, has found, uh, has died. And that he's died by suicide by having his throat cut. They go for a walk out in the uh countryside and his friend with the band-aid um has a series of unfortunate events things seem to be against him and he um concludes their afternoon by saying you know what i'm leaving i can't handle this place and he gets on the train and uh goes off unshaven but the friend who survives finds out that his friend has either killed himself or been killed, or is in any case dead, uh, having had his throat cut on the train. So those are the events as they unfold in the story generally, but there's lots in between that I think are uh, leading to various interpretations as to what's actually going on. This is kind of a ghost story, um, and it's... A very good kind of ghost story because I don't like ghost stories generally. I think ghosts are pretty silly, but uh, this one it straddles a nice line between 
ambiguity and humor and what could be going on, I think. Interesting. I, uh, I, I resonate, uh, or I should say your comment that sometimes the story seems slight and other times it seems uh, weightier um, resonates with me. Uh, when I read this first, I thought pretty lightweight. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it opens up with uh, a, a perambulatory uh, assertion that we all know that there's such a thing as the malice of inanimate objects. You know, we've all had days when it seems like we're stubbing our toe and bumping into stuff and things that shouldn't fall down somehow fall down and a pen goes dry in the middle of something we really have to record. And, you know, I mean, there's inanimate objects sort of get to us sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it reminds us of that. And then it, it brings up this grim fairy tale um, about Mr. Corbus, um, who has one of those bad days, in fact, uh, ending with a millstone uh, jumping up and crushing him and killing him, uh, which is a... Certainly it is a household tale that's it was published by Grimm, the Grimm brothers in their book on uh, Kinder und Hausmärchen, uh, Children and Household Tales. Uh, it's not a true fairy tale. It's clear from its structure that the story of Mr. Corbus isn't a true fairy tale. So I don't know where it came from before uh, Grimm's got a hold of it. Uh, they d presumably didn't make any up out of whole cloth, but this is not a true oral folktale. But that's the, the tale that James begins this with. And then he tells the story that, that you've uh, told about the walk and things going wrong and Mr. Burton deciding that he's had it and he gets on the train and goes away and he's discovered dead. But at the end of this story by James, we go back to have another paragraph that reminds us of the story of what James calls Squire Corbus. Um, so I don't think that it's... Uh, I don't think we can just omit consideration of this framing device. I think that the framing device is actually crucial. And now I'm looking toward the deeper rather than the, the thinner reading. Um, it's crucial in understanding exactly why we get that feeling of ambivalence. You know, uh, mm -hmm. James is, is famous uh, in two ways in relation to the ghost story. Uh, one, he substituted antiquarian sorts of things, you know, an old manuscript, what have you, um, for the sort of cliches that had dominated the, the supernatural in Gothic literature. So he's often thought of as the father of so-called antiquarian ghost stories. The other thing about his relation to ghost stories is that he has contemporaries like Henry James, for instance, who write ghost stories in which you can't really be 100 percent sure that there is a ghost. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe mm -hmm. we're just thinking about it. Maybe it just feels ghosty. Um, and that sort of ambiguity, which suggests that the supernatural may be in our lives, even if we don't know its force and intent, um, that characterizes a lot of modern ghost stories produced by people who are who are contemporaries of M.R. James. But James doesn't. That is, it's a, it is a critical truism to say, but no, no, no. He just believes in ghosts. 
Um, this story, I think, gives us a chance to see him actually writing a more modern kind of ghost story because it's it's possible he does believe in ghosts here, but it's also possible he doesn't. Um, let, let me see if I can clarify this. Um, he begins by saying, the malice of inanimate objects is a subject upon which an old friend of mine was fond of dilating and not without justification. Okay, so we don't know who the friend is. Mm -hmm. Right? We don't know why this guy says that it's not without justification, which is a very gentle way of saying, and by golly, he's justified. There is an, a malice of inanimate objects. In the lives of all of us, short or long, there have been days, dreadful days, on which we have had to acknowledge with gloomy resignation that our world has turned against us. And then he says, I do not mean the human world of our relations and friends to enlarge on that is the province of nearly every modern novelist. <laughs> I mean, wham, what, yep, a, that's an what a slam against modern novelists, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's what they want to do is talk about how human beings are all turned against us. In their books, it is called life and an odd enough hash it is as they portray it. Mm -hmm. So, wow, modern novelists you know, see human beings doing terrible things to each other all the time, unrelenting. He sees nothing pleasant or uplifting in modern in life as portrayed by modern novelists. But he says here, no, it is the world of things that do not speak or work or hold congresses and conferences. So they are inanimate. Mm -hmm. It includes such beings as the collar stud, the inkstand, the fire, the razor, and as age increases, the extra step on the staircase, which leads you either to expect or not to expect it, which is a very clever way of letting us know that it may well be our ineptitude with these inanimate objects. By these and such as these, for I have named but the merest fraction of them, the word is passed around and the day of misery arranged. Well, that's just the opposite of what he just said, mm -hmm. right? He said they were inanimate. He's shown us that it could be our ineptitude. But then if he asserts, the narrator asserts, that they are passing the word around. Hey, you know, it's time for Eric or Jesse to have a bad day. Let's stumble them a lot. Let's be malicious to them. Um, then, in fact, they are not exactly inanimate. Then he asks us instantly to remember this tale um, of Squire Corbus. And Squire Corbus has, you know, these things happen to him, inanimate objects. Some of them are not exactly inanimate, like an egg. Um, and it ends by truly in concluding the concluding words of this story, the squire must have been either a very wicked or very unfortunate man. That's how the story ends. You know, the narrator of the grim tale after after Corbus is killed by the millstone. It is the latter alternative which I incline to accept. Now, I think, Jesse, this is really quite important. On a simple reading of the story, I don't mean simple. I mean, on, a, on an unscholarly reading of the story, I think we have no reason not to accept what the narrator has just given us as a summary of the Grimm Brothers fairy tale. Mm -hmm. right? And he says that the fairy tale ends with, you know, uh, he must have been either a very wicked or very unfortunate man. And I, the narrator, is inclined to accept the latter, meaning he was very unfortunate. When the story ends, after, after Mr. Burton has had his throat slit by somebody, 
or something or himself, um, we get this extra paragraph. Do not these facts, that is the facts about the story of Burton, if facts they are, bear out my suggestion that there is something not inanimate behind the malice of inanimate objects? Aha, uh-huh. that's what he's been getting at all along. He's trying to tell us they're just inanimate, but he's trying to show us, as with having them whisper and pass the word, um, that they actually, there is something behind their malice. Do they, that is the facts, not further suggest that when this malice begins to show itself, we should be very particular to examine and, if possible, rectify our obliquities in our recent conduct. And obliquity is the opposite of uh, something of rectitude. It's things we've done awry, bad conduct. Shouldn't we, you know, fix our own behavior? And do they not finally almost force upon us the conclusion that, like Squire Corbus, Mr. Burton must have been either a very wicked or a singularly unfortunate man. Mm-hmm. And that's the last word of the story. So I'm starting to think, you know, the guy says, oh, I think these are inanimate. But then he shows that they're not. He says, I believe that he must have been unfortunate. Uh, but now he's saying that there is something that's not just inanimate about these objects. And should we conclude that Mr. Burton was not, in fact, singularly unfortunate, but indeed very wicked, but the narrator is not willing to actually say it. So here, so, and, and I could build, I could build that argument quite, quite clearly, I think, from the facts that are given, but let me give a fact that is not given. Okay. And that is this, um, when, if you read, um, the Grimm brothers, you will find, let me see if I can get the exact, the exact translation. Yes. Uh, the, the most popular translation of the Grimm brothers at the time that, that James was reading, was, was writing, was Lucy Crane's 1883 translation. And in her translation, the story ends, what a bad man Mr. Corbus must have been doesn't say anything about unfortunate. It just says, what a bad man Mr. Corbus must have been. So I went to find the original German. And the original German ends, Der Herr Corbus muss ein rechtböser Mann gewesen sein. Period. That is, Herr, the, uh, Mr. Corbus must have been a very wicked man. Period. Period. Neither Grimm nor Crane say anything about unfortunate. Now, I, I can't prove that there never was a translation of the Grimm tales in which that extra thing about unfortunate was thrown in. Mm-hmm. But in fact, James takes a substantial amount of time in this short story to tell us the story of Mr. Corbus. And he gives us this line and he repeats it at the end. And I think he's doing that so that the narrator can coyly say, Oh, he must have been singularly unfortunate, which is a way of saying nobody could be that unfortunate. (laughs) Indeed. He was murdered. He didn't just slip trying to, uh, to hurt himself. Now, there, I think, are some other things here that make that that case. 
Um, when Burton and Manners are out for a walk, um, they suddenly are, are startled by a voice that says, look out, I'm coming. Mm-hmm. They both stop as if they had been shot, as if they had been shot. Okay. Who was that? Said Manners. Blessed if I didn't know, think I knew him. Blessed. Mm-hmm. Oh, we've got some religious supernatural thing, right? Then, with almost a yell of laughter, he pointed with his stick, his walking stick. A cage with a gray parrot in it was hanging in an open window across the way. I was startled by George. It gave you quite a bit of a turn, too, didn't it? Burton was inaudible, so we don't know what Burton replied. Well, I shan't be a minute. You go and make friends with the bird, blah, blah, blah. But Burton doesn't go and make friends with the bird. Now, here's an interesting thing. When... At breakfast, Burton reads, uh, Manners reads to Burton about the death of somebody that Burton knows, uh, someone with whom they've been, he has been wrangling about settling a will, uh, working presumably as a, as a lawyer, um, solicitor, I guess, he's not, he's not arguing in front of the court, but writing up papers. That man's name is George, George Wilkins. And here, when it says the parrot speaks, you know, and parrots are sort of inanimate things, the way this story handles it, when, when Manner says, I was startled by George, leave out the comma. And in fact, he was startled by George, mm-hmm. that although George mm-hmm. is dead, his voice goes on. When Burton is found dead with his throat slit in the compartment, um, on the, uh, the, the bib around his neck, the white napkin, uh, which presumably was put there, uh, I guess, so that somebody could shave him or it was just put there so he could eat. We don't know that he intended to have a shave. The, the red letters presumably made in his blood say G E O dot W dot F E C I, which is. If Fechi is Latin for was done, mm-hmm. which it is, mm-hmm. what it says is this was done by George W. And W could be Wilkins. OK, now, <laughs> why is it that Burton wants to leave? I mean, we've got George Wilkins has died unexpectedly. He wasn't even ill. Presumably he cut his own throat shaving. That's all the police can tell. Then they are frightened by George. And then Burton is has his throat slit and the sign says it was done by George Wilkins by, by George W. Um, is it possible since since Burton and Wilkins were at odds over the settlement of this will that Burton, in fact, killed Wilkins mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I mean, he certainly doesn't show horror when the newspaper reports this. He's he's shows interest, but not not horror. And then the next day when he goes to shave himself after having had these inanimate objects jump up and, you know, scare him, including the parrot who scares him by George, um, he, he says, you know, I, I can't shave. My hand is so shaky. Well, maybe, you know, George Wilkins, uh, I mean, maybe, uh, excuse me, um, Burton killed Wilkins and his hand is shaking because of guilt. 
And maybe it's just coincidental that he tries to shave himself in a moving train carriage and the, the blood comes out of his neck, which he somehow cuts himself. I mean, I don't know how you could cut that deeply uh, by accident, but, you know, and it just accidentally says George W. did it in Latin. Um, so that at the end, when the narrator says, and do they not finally almost force that is these facts upon us, the conclusion that like Squire Corbus, Mr. Burton must have been either a very wicked or a singularly unfortunate man. I think what the narrator is trying to get us to conclude because he knows we'll reject it if he just says it he's getting trying to get us to conclude that if you want to explain this stuff by logic and coincidence it's just too far-fetched <laughs> in fact he must have been very wicked he must have killed george wilkins and george wilkins is getting his revenge <laughs> so that the original notion you know, that there is something, something not inanimate behind the malice of inanimate objects. And that's a quote that we find again in that last paragraph. There's something not inanimate behind the malice of inanimate objects. If we take this reading, the thing that is not inanimate, that is behind the malice of inanimate objects, is a supernatural desire for revenge. And in the case of an un of an illegitimate killing, it is in fact not simply revenge, but justice. <laughs> so this is a story, after all, it's a ghost story. Mm -hmm. But it's not a ghost story about the ghost. As you said, it's a story about belief. I think it's a story that's trying to get us, as we become more and more invested in reading it and deeper and deeper into understanding what it says and what it repeats, it's a story that gets us to think, we do live in a world with retribution. It is a deeply conservative story, arguing that things should be a certain way. Mr. Manners is the one who gets everything right, who has no problem in the world. But in fact, there are supernatural forces that are released by the very wicked, and those forces will turn against them. Got um, I've got some little notes here and there. Um, one of one of the fun things about that ambiguous inscription uh, in red letters on on the napkin, uh, some some people speculated that those were um, were actually stitches rather than um, uh, blood stains, right? <laughs> in which case, this is evidence uh, that he has, was at the scene of the crime. Uh, of the murder of George, <laughs> and that he's stolen his his um, uh, pocket handkerchief <laughs> somehow, right? Um, I'm I'm not so sure about that. What I do like to yeah, think I, of, I've got to say, I've never seen anyone's monogram that had Fetchy on it. Well, as in he made it himself, right? Is the yeah, idea? Oh, so so that's it. George Wilkins does embroidery, as yeah, and then he's proud of his own embroidery. I mean, that's a kind of a weak way of doing it. But I, I, I do like the alternative um, of Fetchy uh, that is coming up in my own uh, <laughs> interpretation, which may not be very Jamesian, but Fetchy is the uh, plural of poo. Yes, it is. So George W. 
that's a shit, right? <laughs> it's like, like, is he killing himself? Um, and then, you know, somehow with the blood, it just says, uh, it's very ambiguous as to what it, it, it all means. Like, I did this because, or George M Wilkins made me do this, or I did this because, uh, I'm George Wilkins, I did this, right? The, all the malicious objects that were attacking him throughout the day were being manipulated by a ghost that could physically move things, right? Um, you know, he finds a boy's kite and he brings it nearby. It seems unlikely, right? But what what I love is that there's a line in the story that perfectly captures the the change. But before I get to that change in, in the actual words that characters speak, I want to point to a similar... I mean, it's such a short story that it's amazing that all of this is packed in there. But we've got a window. Um, and in that window is a cage. And in that cage is a parrot. And they hear a voice come from that direction. And it says, I'm coming now, right? Or something mm -hmm. to that effect. And they're both startled. They don't know where it's coming from. Then they see that the, the bird, they point to the bird and say that's where it came from he goes up to the bird the bird stuffed so this is an object that they thought was animate that is inside an inanimate thing that's inside an inanimate thing and they're all inanimate right so it's like we make mistakes and this is where i in my own life when uh, my comprehension of ghosts is we make mistakes we see things and we think that they're um things that they aren't right you know you see a shadow and you think oh it's a person but no it's not or you know you see a mannequin and you you know you're in in the uh i don't know the clothing department of a department store and you know you bump this is a very canadian thing you bump into it and say oh i'm sorry and you turn and it's a mannequin right right <laughs> um this is the kind of a silly little thing that makes us feel embarrassed because we do project um, intention out into the world. We say the reason that is doing that is because of X. And yet it's a very immature person who, you know, gets mad at a stone for tripping him on the path. But the way, very way I phrased it, the stone tripped me, is ridiculous. What I love is that this, this framing of the bird in the window in the cage uh, is replicated in a line along with that that very sinister and also very um, prosaic uh, kite, right? Here's the line. Now if I can find out what that little beast, as in the owner of the kite, has left that uh, kicking we should, about. We for people who haven't read the story, uh, on their walk they find a kite uh, having uh, Burton having tripped over the string, the kite string. Right. Now, if I find out what that little beast has left, that kicking about, I'll let him have it. As in, I'll beat him up, right? Or yell at him. Or rather, I won't, for he shan't see his kite again. So he's made a transition here, halfway through his sentence, I'll let him have it, as in, I'll yell at him and not uh, be kind. Or rather, I won't let him have it, as in, I won't give him his kite. So he has made a mistake, or if he if he didn't make a mistake, 
he's correcting himself in the same way that we correct ourselves when we see a parrot in a cage and hear a voice coming from him and assume that it's a live parrot. Um, when we uh, are walking through the forest and we stumble over a tree root um, and we think that the tree was out to get us, that's a kind of mistake. This paranoia um, about inanimate objects is very deep in humanity, right? We start off that way in a certain sense as children, but animism, the idea that everything is alive, um, is, for most of human history and prehistory, would have been the major way of interacting with the world. And it's only our sort of modern sensibilities that make ghosts very few and far between. Ghosts that can manipulate our world and and conspire against us. I, I agree. I think seeing this as related to the human uh, impulse to animism is is wise. Uh, the story doesn't, after all, certainly the narrator doesn't come out and say, you know, very unfortunate, singularly unfortunate, that's, that's the right answer. <laughs> very wicked, that's the wrong answer. But it does pile up a lot of stuff. Um, uh, the, the, the kite has on it the letters ICU, um, which I think made by a little boy, which is the which is Burton's immediate assumption, um, doesn't stand for intensive care unit. Right. It means, you know, you are being observed. There are things in the sky now down on the ground. And when he says I'm, and, and what he does is immediately stick his stick through it. He tries to disable it. Mm -hmm. Right. He, he does not want to be seen uh, when that when the parrot. Uh, says, look out, I'm coming. Um, since it is a stuffed parrot, one can note at least two things about it. First, that it's gray, which has to do with the ambiguity of the whole story. The other is that the sound that comes out of the window doesn't have to have come only from the parrot. It could have come from something further into the room. For example, look out, I'm coming. You know, <laughs> it has certain meanings. And what we have at breakfast with Manners and Burton is an absolutely asexual situation. In fact, M.R. James's whole life is asexual. There are biographers who've argued that he was celibate for his entire life. But come on, folks, he lived in Eton and he lived in Cambridge for virtually all of his adult life. He understood there were such things as you know, look out, I'm coming. Um, but he thought of them as bad, as evil. And it may well be that the reason that that Burton is wrangling over a will with Wilkins <laughs> is that uh, he doesn't want to be that is Burton doesn't want to be part of of the messiness um, of regular male life. He ejaculated. Uh, <laughs> And so this story, um, it is it is based on animism, but it, maybe animism isn't only a projection. The story seems to, <laughs> to ask us to consider. Maybe it really is the world in some kind of poetic accord with the good and evil of men for the evil that they do lives after them. But there's always more to say.